to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 120, recorded on August 27th of 2020. This is the podcast where you listen to geek out about photography and things related to photography, cameras and sensors and technology, um, ethics and legalese stuff that we try to distill down into things meaningful to the geeky photographer. And I am your host, Don Kamarechka. I'm usually jo- uh, joined by a co-host, and this co-host is uh, the MVP. Uh, you probably know his name by now if you've been listening along. Steve Brazel is back in the co-pilot chair. Steve, thanks for being here. Good morning. How are you? It's not Good morning, morning, but oh well. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, just trying to juggle a lot of things at the same time. Uh, I'm glad that we're recording now instead of we've had some scheduling issues. We were going to do it on the weekend. I could dedicate that to wrapping up my book and a few other things. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Summer is uh, starting to cool off a little bit here. In your neck of the woods, though, it's still pretty hot and smoky, yeah. I hear. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not too smoky in SoCal, although we've had our share of fires. It's really bad up in Northern California, but... It's a hundred outside today, and when we're done doing this, I'll be outside in 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 the wonderful dry heat mowing the yard. Uh yeah, I wouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd wait until I had insomnia in the middle of the night and just turn on the floodlights in the backyard, and, and which I've that. done <laughs> definitely. So, uh, Steve, we uh, we convened today uh, with a couple of interesting stories. Nothing really big in terms of new hardware announcements or really heavy hitting content. So it might be a, a quicker episode than most. Um, but uh, but what, before we go through the rundown, how have you felt the industry has just been driving through this pandemic? Um, it's interesting. When this started, everybody thought camera releases would end, that products that had been rumored and were on the roadmap would end, and you know, or that would be they would be held until quote unquote we got back to normal. And we haven't seen that. Companies are yeah. still companies, they've got roadmaps, they're not movie, you know houses that have to hold back until and decide, you know, do we release it to stream or do we hold off until it can play in a theater? They, they are planning like car companies. They're planning years in advance for what the releases are going to be. And so they're still moving forward. The question is from the other side of the coin, right? How are the camera companies seeing consumer response? I would love to see the sales numbers on the R5 and the R6. And on the yeah. new Sony, I would love to know, are people struggling enough that those aren't selling where they need them to be? Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a very fair point. Um, I think that a lot of people that will, uh, will buy those cameras have not bought them yet. This is my suspicion because they just, aren't, they don't have the gigs lined up that's to me. utilize it and to get the return on the investment right now where, and this is all, almost always the case, the, the prices of cameras rarely ever go up unless it becomes a collector's item or some strange anachronism down the road where it suddenly uh, balloons in value because it was something now sought after um, from the past. But those prices are usually going down and down right after a product launch. And, And not by much, but if you don't need it now and you can save a couple of bucks and pick it up a little bit later, then maybe that's worthwhile to you. And then a gig comes along that would benefit from that and snap your fingers and make your purchase then. Well, plus you've got the scenario with cameras like the R5, where there's been a lot of bad press on one particular area that won't affect me at all. However, 
if if you understand the marketplace of of large camera companies, <clears throat> you immediately know which we're going to mention today, and that is the new firmware release for the R five and the, the that's story number two in the rundown. Right. But, uh, but but that's but that's a key component in that you know. Okay, I don't need an R five right now because there's no concerts for me to shoot. So by me waiting. I know Canon is going to come out with firmware updates relatively quickly right now to solve those initial bugs. But if you're a still shooter, um, aside from some basic bugs, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of feature improvement on the still side right exactly. now while they're in crisis mode to make the video side uh, less problematic for people. Exactly. So it's uh, it's an interesting time. And, uh, you know, I... I, I haven't bought much camera gear in the last little while. I got a sweet deal on a uh, on a Nikon Rayfact. It's their uh, ultraviolet um, uh, reflectance lens. It lets UV light pass through uh, to a very great. Uh, a, a huge percentage of uh, UV transmission. This particular lens uh, used to be called the UV Nikkor, and they brought it back for a limited production run. Uh, I don't know if it's still being manufactured at all, but um, uh, thank you. If you're listening, you know who you are, uh, who gave me a very, very good deal on this. Um, and uh, I've been doing some shooting uh, for a number of projects on that that I can't really talk about yet, but I'm excited for Ooh. But but I got it because there was a need and uh, I can, a, a piece of equipment like that, I can buy, use for that project. And then I could probably sell it for what I bought it for. Uh, you know, it doesn't right. degrade in value for some, uh, you know, niche item. So long as I could find a buyer, that that's the only, uh, the key distinction there. But um, yeah, onward and upward, um, except for some people, if we go into our stories of, uh, of the week, uh, sometimes it's a uh, downward crying in your hands moment where you've lost data. And we've had some stories from a number of companies lately. You know, Canon had its uh, infamous problem that we talked about a few episodes ago, um, but uh, reported on uh, DIYphotography.net. Photos and presets are, quote, not recoverable, says Adobe as Lightroom Update deletes customer images. Um, you know, I, I got to think that quality assurance and testing uh, should be paramount to a very large corporation such as Adobe, especially when they make the transition to hosting your content, uh, your creative inspiration, your data in the cloud. And they go and they they goof it up. Uh, and when you goof up data storage, usually you lose your data, uh, you know, from some uh, innocuous little bug that didn't show up in testing. Well, maybe you didn't test enough. Um, or maybe it's somebody uh, trying to hack the system and find some strange way to manipulate or cause a bug. Uh, and that would be malicious. Um, but a new version of, uh, of Lightroom Mobile for iOS and iPad has been released that solves this problem, but the uh, iOS and iPad OS um, uh, versions prior to 5.4.1, so that's 5.4.0, um, that's where the, I believe the bug was introduced then, uh, it, it and, only, and only in that particular version. Um, and if you trusted Adobe, uh, maybe you're not going to do so, at least not entirely anymore, right, Steve? Well, let's start with the good. First of all, 5.4.0 came out. Delete, uh, Adobe did the one, the singular thing you never do. D 
delete people's data. There's only really one golden rule if you're going to host people's data, and that is don't delete it. Yep. And and they deleted it. In their defense, you can beta test to death, but when you put it out in the world to you know however many users, you are going to get anomalies that didn't show up in your beta testing. However, I firmly believe this should have been caught. In beta. There is no question in my mind this should have never made it out of beta. At least they came out with 5.4.1 quickly, and we should probably tell people. If you have, because I know a lot of people who don't auto-update their apps a lot, uh, Lightroom 5.4.0 for iOS or iPadOS. If you have photos and in that app and you do not have an Adobe Cloud subscription, you're vulnerable. Or if you have a cloud subscription and your photos and presets are, have not been synced, you can literally lose your photos and they are not restorable. And their quote killed me. We know how frustrating and ups- I'm going to do it in the voice. Hold on. <laughs> we know how frustrating and upsetting this will be to people affected. And we sincerely apologize. Does that sound at all non-corporate believable to you? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, or, or is that just a oops? You know, if they really were sorry, there would be some more verbose response, right? Um, you know, they'd say, hey, it was Jim. Jim's been fired. We don't want Jim anymore because yeah. we don't want these problems anymore. <laughs> Jim's, Jim's going to have a tough spot on his resume. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, okay, so this goes twofold. Number one, um, the idea of having your data in one place is always a bad thing. Um, but often in mobile platforms, especially if it's freshly generated content, that might be the only place where it exists if you created it on that platform until you have a chance to back it up. Like you um, shot it, like you took a picture in actual Lightroom mobile mm-hmm. and it, but here's the thing. If a cloud company is going to store things as precious as photos, which is one of the rare data points that people care most about, the fact that they don't have a disaster recovery plan for their servers is- Oh, that, that was my second point, right? Because, uh, so what happens if data just, if somebody accidentally just deletes every photo in their account? Um you know, and so you should have a system to say, okay, well, we're not going to actually delete that. We're going to flag it as deleted. We're going to put it in the trash bin on Windows or whatever. And it's going to live there for a while until you want to empty that out. And then it's gone for good. And the same thing should exist in Adobe apps. Um, whether it's stored locally or on the cloud, uh, a delete should never be a delete. It should be a move to a trash folder. And that is it requires like uh, like you to put your fingerprint on it to delete it from there. Like it requires uh, a higher level of privileges. Even in desktop operating systems, though, there are times on external media, whatever, that you go to delete a file and it does not say, do you want to send this to the recycle bin? It says, do you want to permanently delete? But right. again, there's a permanent delete warning there. Here, there's no warning because this was done by bad code. Now, here's the thing. This was Lightroom Mobile. This is a bug in code. This could have happened. Make no mistake. This could have been Lightroom for the desktop classic or cloud version. 
Yep. Right? This could have been bad code that corrupted your library and ate your photos. It would be more difficult in some ways because of the way the files are structured, but it could have been done. So here's the here's my main thing. This is me standing on my soapbox now. It has always been and remains your responsibility to protect the data that you care about. You have to have a good backup strategy. You have to have a good disaster recovery strategy. And those, by the way, are not the same thing. Backup strategy, disaster recovery strategy are two different things. You need local copies for speed of recovery. You need offsite copies for disaster recovery. And this is the big one. You need to test it. Periodically, every six months, every quarter, every year, you need to go try recovering a file so that A, you know how, and B, you know that your backup is, uh, is, has integrity. You test your smoke detector in the house, or at least you should. You should test your backup abilities as well. Uh, and it's a, okay, maybe this is the PSA of the episode. Everybody listening that's a Lightroom user, back up your catalog. Back it up right now. Make a copy of it. Put it somewhere disconnected from your computer. Put it on a uh, on a portable hard drive. You know, stick it somewhere in a drawer. You should Just- clarify for people what the backup catalog is, though, because it isn't the photos. That's right. Uh, so uh, when when we're talking about data, we're often thinking uh, back up your your images. Absolutely, and, and, and you want to back all of that up as well. Um, but if your Lightroom catalog gets unrecoverably corrupted. You won't have a digital asset manager anymore to organize any of your uh, uh, any of your photos that would have had all of the edits to the raw files, that would have had any of the keywording done that's not exported into uh, an existing finalized image. Um, all of the uh, the collections and stuff that you've done and, and organized your data um, in a way that you find useful. That's taken you years to figure out how to fundamentally navigate everything poof, it's gone. Now, some of that, if you're doing non-destructive edits, some of that will be in your sidecar file if you're using sidecar files or in your DNG if you're using DNG. Right. But if you are storing your edits in the catalog, that catalog is more than just a display system. Yeah. It, Full it's, database. It, it's, it's a, yeah, a database. And uh, if you lose it, you won't lose your images. You might have to redo some edits, which is always a pain. But the the organization of that all, if you have to start from scratch, it's almost impossible. That's why a lot of programs, uh, I know, um, and I'm using on one photo ROM more and more now, they have a Lightroom catalog import system um, because you don't want to start from scratch. Nobody wants to do that. You want to have the ability to bring that uh, that structure, that organization along with you wherever you go. And uh, so that, I, I don't want to say it's as valuable as your photos because if you lose your st- structure of organizing stuff, it'll take you time, you'll sort it out again. If you lose your photos, you've lost your photos. Um, but time time is money and, and effort is, uh, is a challenging thing to put into something, at least for me, that I know I've already done before. I just have no motivation to do, to do the same thing twice. Did you see the parody? I, I shouldn't call it parody. They said at the end of the article, again, it's on DIY photography, uh, the website Wedding Photo Hangover had a slightly different take on the issue. Did you read that? I didn't read it. Uh, their title up right is now. awesome. Here's their title. Or I, it's either the title or it might be just a 
a line in it. Let me look really quick. <laughs> I love it. Uh, no, 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 it's the title. Uh, so it's the title. Uh, Adobe uh, unburdens photographers of stress of unfinished edits by erasing their photos. Oh, that's brilliant. That's a PR spin for you. Uh, we are going to de-stress you. Your problems have gone away. You no longer have to edit so those photos. <laughs> so good. Whoever runs that site, I'm bowing to you because that was that was awesome. Yeah, um, that's. Uh, I, I don't know what photo that they're using there. Uh, it looks like a volcanic eruption of some kind. Uh, the the subheading underneath it is satire, so I'm not sure exactly where it comes from. But thank you for bringing that to my attention, Steve. I needed a little chuckle. Yeah, that was good. Uh, and now I need a little curious in investigations uh, into, uh, you know, what do you want to call this? Uh, heat gate? Overheating gate? What sort of Watergate synonymous term? Nightmare? Uh, with I mean, the cannon, so, cannon's worst nightmare? Right. Um, so this is an evolving thing. And these stories continue to come out. Uh, I wrote the show notes before the firmware 1.1 for the uh, EOS um, uh, R5 was published. So we're going to go back a little bit to figure out some tricks people were experimenting with to figure out what exactly was going on. And uh, uh, EOS HD, the Canon EOS uh, R5, so-called overheat timer defeated by a single screw in a battery door. And that sounds ominous. It's not, you don't need to use a screen. It's also written very snarky. <laughs> it is. Uh, and the, there, there is a switch um, that uh, you can clearly see in the picture if you, if you check out the article. And, and the link to that is at uh, photogeekweekly.com. But, um, and, and most cameras do this. Uh, not all. Uh, I think previous Canon cameras of mine, when I popped the battery door open, the camera just kind of went limp. And uh, it just it didn't do anything at that point because there's a little um, switch that is uh, in that compartment that detects whether or not the camera can operate safely, Right. that there's no risk of disconnecting the battery. And so what uh, if I could summarize this, uh, basically Canon, at least in the initial firmware release, was using a counter that when you popped open allegedly. the battery door, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> we're using a canter, um, they, uh, that when you popped open the battery door, uh, it panicked and worried for its life and wrote that counter to memory. Opening the battery door would also, uh, you know, stop the, the file recording and everything else, just like I've seen in my other Canon cameras. Um, and so you do that, and then you take the battery out thinking that, oh, well, will I be able to reset things? No, because Canon was smart enough. It knows that that action will likely result in the battery being removed as a secondary action, and everything is written down and shut down. But And, and let, me, let me interject. Think of it this way. The best analogy I came up with was you know, a Windows machine. You don't want to just unplug the power because... There's stuff in RAM that needs to be written. If it's in the middle of a write, you can corrupt things. So you want to do a safe shutdown. And what a safe shutdown does when you shut down any computer is it properly finishes any writes uh, sequences that it's doing. And suspend is a similar type model. When something goes to sleep, it's the same thing. What this switch effectively was doing without turning the camera off was putting it in a suspend mode so that anything that was in RAM could be written to NVRAM, non-volatile RAM, uh, and apparently possibly even be written to the SD card 
to keep track of, okay, the overheat timer was at 13 minutes. Let's keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, who knows where they were writing this this information? It, it, you mentioned um, you know this sort of suspend mode. It reminds me back in like the uh, the forty six days uh, with Windows ninety five, where you would uh, shut down the computer and it would display on the screen. It is now safe to turn off your PC. Yes, um, because it didn't have the hardware to actually turn off the computer from software. Speaking uh, of which, pop quiz: What famous rock song was used as the marketing campaign for Windows ninety five? Oh, uh, Rolling Stones. They were paid $3.2 million for it. I can't remember the name of the song. <laughs> Start me up. Start me up. There it yeah. is. Uh, funny how I got all the other facts, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyhow. Uh, rabbit hole. So, rabbit hole. Uh, those are fun. So, anyhow, uh, b- back to the issue at hand. If you put a screw or a a Q-tip or whatever you have uh, down that hole, a, a toothpick to depress that switch. Um, it doesn't have a warning system. And then when you remove the battery, it didn't have its panic mode to suspend everything. It just lost power. Uh, and the findings were what, Steve? That when you put the battery back in, the overheat timer had reset to zero. And now, you the could downside record. is it's not practically usable because you're recording a video, you are get nearing an overheat indicator, you're a minute from it shutting down, from overheating, the battery door is already propped open and the switch is disabled with some object such as a screw. When you pull the battery, you also lose the video that you are recording. But it well, does reset the timer. You've corrupted the video. That's not to say that it's non-recoverable. You might be able to run it through a piece of software that properly ends the file and then it can be used. Writes the headers, yeah. But, you but know, effectively for production, it's useless. Exactly. And so, uh, but this isn't the first time that counters have been used in Canon hardware. We talked about it in the last episode where um, I've famously complained, although nobody listens to me, about the overheating counter in the Canon MR-14EX2 ring flash, where when I'm out in the field and I'm shooting in minus 20 degrees weather when I'm trying to photograph snowflakes, it's giving me overheating warnings uh, that I know are not accurate. And to stop it, while the flash is on, I have to pop open the battery door, which disconnects power because the battery door on those flashes contain the electrical contacts that uh, keep the power on. And then wait a minute just to make sure things clear, plug it back in, put in all of my ratio settings and stuff again because that's all been forgotten, and then go on to the next snowflake. After that one, remember... uh, undo the battery door, do that again, because if I don't, then halfway through the shoot, it's going to give me an overheating warning and all of those images are now useless because I didn't complete the series for a focus stack. Um, And so Canon is no stranger, allegedly, to using counters in their hardware to detect heat uh, or to approximate what the heat levels are. Yeah. To to basically do an arbitrary count based on an approximation. These numbers that they're counting are based on their lab tests of when something to them would overheat. But you said something to me on the phone the other day that I had not thought about that I thought was literally brilliant. Astrophotography related, right? And it was photography related. Uh, Well, I said astrophotography. Uh, 
that the idea was that sensors produce poorer quality results when they're hot, right? Which means, quote unquote, air quotes, overheating does not necessarily mean to you what Canon is using it to be. So, so let me back up here. The original thing from EOS HD uh, was that Andrew Reed, who I believe runs it, found that the EXIF data of the raw images had the temperature of the internals in the raw data. Well, and that, that's been the case for a while. If you were to go back uh, and use Phil Harvey's um, uh, wonderful EXIF tool, um, he documents so many different hidden values, including internal temperatures of prior Canon cameras, uh, if you can decode it properly. Which is key, though, because these what he found in his testing, it appeared as though the the internals were not actually reaching any uncomfortable temperature for standard processors and, and electronics. And so his interpretation of that was, you're using the phrase overheating. Overheating means heat. And therefore, I'm seeing it's not hot. Next follow-up article was somebody pulled out an infrared sense, sent, uh, camera and shot the camera while it was being used and also determined the processor was not reaching an excessive heat mark. But Heat doesn't necessarily mean heat. Heat may be a benchmark Canon is using that is not an excessive heat warning, meaning the processor's in, damp in danger. It may just mean the processor has reached a hot enough temperature or sensor that it can't write good quality imagery. I've never heard anybody else in my looking of the coverage bring this particular point up. Um, no, which is why when you said it to me, I went, wait, what, what? I'd never, yeah. because let's be honest, overheat means overheat, but overheat could be a threshold they've chosen to maintain image quality. And it isn't what we think of as too hot to function could be damaged. Right. And and so I bring this back to astrophotography, the only cameras that I know of that are actively cooled with thermoelectric cooling devices, um, where, you know, and, and that's not all of them, uh, mind you, but some of them, um, and I've seen them in, in magazines and, you know, the ads and uh, what have you. I don't know how effective this is in creating the highest quality results. I haven't used any of those devices, but I do know that they use a Peltier device, which is a thermoelectric cooler that when electricity is applied, gives you coldness on one side and heat on the other. And you attach a heat sink to the, the now hot side uh, to dissipate that heat. And the cold side stays against the sensor in order to keep things really nice and cool. And, and these aren't expensive devices, uh, but they're just not commonly used in our consumer cameras in order to cool things down. Um, and I wonder if some enterprising uh, entrepreneur uh, could design one of these devices, not just a passive heat sink fan thing. Oh, it's not passive if there's a fan, but, uh, but it's not electrically creating cold air. Um, that would be a really interesting adaption to some of these cameras. Uh, you know, I, I, I agree. And, yeah. and let's be clear. Canon is having a much worse 2020 than I am. <laughs> and that kind of feels good. I, I do want to say though, I understand Canon fans, Canon users, people who own Canon glass, people who have used Canon cameras for video, being upset about all of this. 
I think this website, EOSHD, has some amazing content. These articles, like the one with the infrared, the one where- They also have an axe to grind. I don't know why. And that's what I was going to say was, he does some great stuff. I'm going to start with the good. I, I think he is posting some good content. His messaging is way off to me. I don't agree with the post. So there's one article, one line that he says, we pay the money, we decide what is appropriate behavior from Canon. And I'm sorry, I don't know the guy. I'd buy him a beer. But no, you don't. You can be angry. You can be disappointed. We're talking talking about Andrew Reid, by the way, just in case anybody wanted to know his name. And perhaps you you should be angry with Canon. And you can bitch and moan all you want in your blog, and you can bitch and moan all that you want on on Twitter, right? I mean, that's you can do all of that. But your recourse, if you're not happy with the product, is to not spend your money. And Canon definitely should answer all these questions. And so that you know, I, I should disclaim, I have asked Canon twice now since all of this came out to come on and answer these questions, and they've been told no. But when you have a website that says, uh, Canon hasn't reached back out to me and I'm willing to go to small claims court, <laughs> they're not going to reach back out to you when you say that. They're just no. not. But at the same time, that does put pressure uh, on them to do something without connecting with you directly because you have put some pressure on them uh, by riling up the masses to uh, to, to go and, uh, you know, wave the banner of overheating, you know, uh, however you want to phrase it. But they've done something. They have come to the table, and rather quickly, actually. Um, DP Review is reporting uh, the Canon releases the firmware 1.1 for the EOS R5 uh, with some bug fixes, and there's a list of them. We're not going to go through all that. but um, And improvements to video shooting. One of the things in that list, uh, a little, it's the second to the last item, actually. They're not, they're trying to bury this. Um, temperature detection and shooting time control in video shooting have been improved. In addition, the total shooting time when the short time recording and power on off are performed repeatedly at room temperature is improved. So they know what people were doing. They know that people were mucking around trying to uh, find a way around this and figure out what exactly was going on. Is it truly overheating? And uh, Jordan Drake, a uh, good friend of mine and of the podcast, um, decided to test the, uh, the cameras with the different firmwares. And uh, what did he discover? He found that in most cases, the original recording time before it shut down due to overheating warnings was extended. And at times it was five minutes. At times it was, I think, 10 or 15 minutes, depending on what format, whether it was using 8K or he only tested in the video 8K and 4K HQ. Right. He has since... Uh, done some testing, I believe, because I was talking to him online today. He has done some testing on regular like 4K60. And 4K60, he got the first one, uh, he got a grand total of 46 minutes before shutdown at room temperature, which was a half hour clip because they're all limited to 29 minutes and 59 seconds. And then another 16 minute one, which I'm going to be honest, I don't understand if if the 29 minutes, 59 seconds is the EU tax of, I think it's like, what was it, 8 to 12% or 5 to 12%. Which may or may not exist anymore, we're not sure. But. Which I have not been able to confirm doesn't exist anymore. Um, but people have said online, and I went looking, I can't find it. But 
if you're going to limit it to 2959 and there's no overheat shutdown here, this isn't an overheat issue. Why can't you do 2959, stop it, restart it, get 2959, rinse and repeat? I don't understand that 16 minutes. Well, maybe it is overheating uh, based on the internal temperature measurements. I, uh, and we don't know unless we get a constant readout of that with either an external thermal sensor that can compare the same areas of the camera uh, on those settings. And I'm sure that's going to happen. Somebody's going to do this. But we're just not there yet in sort of dissecting exactly why certain things are happening. We're gathering puzzle pieces at this uh, at this time. And Canon has offered us some clues with this new firmware that if they did actually use their internal uh, thermal sensor, um, which allegedly they weren't doing to begin with, at least not in the ways that would be the most useful for end users, um, then now we've got a product that becomes more useful. But as Jordan says in the video, is this extended range, uh, which in some cases is an additional five, 10 minutes, uh, 15 or so in, in some scenarios uh, before overheating takes place. Well, you know, if you're doing a short thing, then yeah, it, it might make it a bit more useful. But if you're trying to use it in any production environment at all, um, it's not like you just turn it off, you go get a coffee for five minutes, you turn it back on, and we're good to go again from the beginning. Even if you wait a half an hour, your recording times are so minimal that you he waited can't an use hour, it. and his recording times were much less than than the original. But we should we should add, according to Canon rumors, Canon has confirmed that they are currently working on another firmware update that will add Canon Log 3, which is key, by the way, because that's going to give you much more dynamic range. Mm -hmm. they, they did not say Canon Log 2, which is the highest, I think, dynamic range, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not a video guy. Uh, I don't know why 2 is higher than 3, but either way. Excuse me. Um, but also lower bitrate options for 8K RAW, and for all IPB video recording modes and the addition of 11988, so 120 FPS at 1080p. So this is nice. Uh, the lower bit rates, well, I think that the reasoning there is that's, um, that's less data throughput. It's stressing the processors and the internal components a little bit less, and that thereby generates less heat inside yep. the camera body, uh, which would elongate your recording times at the sacrifice of the quality that you bought the camera to use. So, I mean, it's a compromise. But and, again, and I think arguably to me, the bigger thing isn't the recording times. If you could shut it off, 10 minutes and start again. If it, if it reaches overheating mode, simply because you've been taking pictures for an hour stills, and then you go to record video and your recording time is lower. The key issue to me is the, the recycle time of you've got to let that thing sit for an hour or two. Yeah. That's the problem. Well, I mean, you could always you know, put it in a bucket of dry ice. Uh, not sure if that would cause more harm than good. But back in the days when digital cinema was first starting, when Red was releasing its first cameras, they were overheating like mad. And yeah, dry ice was something that you would have on set. Um, and uh, it, it's one of those things of a bygone era. You know, that hasn't happened in a long time because we found other ways to do it. The technology has improved. But um uh, well, we're kind of cycling or circling back around to that beginning here. Um, anyhow, uh, let's talk about Canon some more uh, in our next story, which I absolutely love. Uh, because I love when Roger Sakala 
takes apart a lens. He's the guy. (laughs) His writing is amazing. You could turn, and I'm not even kidding, you could turn his writing into a Seinfeld episode. And I just, I I wish that they recorded these these teardowns because watching a video of it would be equally as entertaining, I can just imagine. Uh, Roger Sakala is uh, the founder of Lens Rentals. And when any new piece of camera gear comes out, they are likely to take it apart. I mean, not every single piece, but they need to see how repairable certain uh, products are uh, and to see whether or not they would handle a repair themselves or if they would send it back to the manufacturer. You know, it's a cost mechanism, but they're also just darn curious about how these things are put together, uh, what manufacturing fundamental ideals are being used by the different companies and how those are changing over time. And it's a glimpse inside the industry that we usually have no idea of. Like, it, we, it's just black. We don't see behind, uh, behind, uh, behind that curtain. But Roger pulls back that curtain for us and shows well, us. Well, and, and keep in mind, they do this all the time because there are certain things they repair their own lenses for. So they know what they're doing here. And yet, his quotes, Aaron suggested, I'm doing the voice again, aren't I? Aaron suggested we should take it apart and see what's in there besides air. At two pounds, there's going to be a lot of air. Lots of air in there, we said. Easy disassembly, we said. It'll be fun, we said. But it was not easy, and it was not fun. (laughs) Oh, and it's just, as you continue to go down through, and I'm just kind of scrolling through this, and again- You got to read it. You have to read it. Read it for yourself at, um, uh, at, uh, you know- uh, lensrentals.com slash blog slash blah, blah, blah. You'll find the link yeah. at photogeekweekly.com. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just, w- what were they talking about um, with the, uh, the, the the main flexes and things like that? Um, it was like oh, offerings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's like, we suggest making heavy, heavy offerings of alcohol and heat to the flex gods, or you're going to tear something you don't want to tear. Because there's this flex cable that runs the entire length of the lens that has like 20-something traces on it that then branches off into a dozen different ways. And at one point, it goes all the way to the top of the lens to meet a connector. And the connector is another ribbon cable that sends it back back down down. the lens. (laughs) And he's not sure why. He actually ended this article by saying... We don't want to work with it. Uh, we don't want to work on the Canon RF 600 F11 IS STM. Life's too short. When these break, they're going to the Canon Service Center. But uh, but let me back up a second here. Oh no, I, I want to back up because I want to finish okay. my thought. He said it's flex anarchy up in there. There's probably some reason for it, but right now, three hours into an expected one hour disassembly, I think the reasoning took place after the engineers drank a lot of sake, and. And keep in mind, he was doing this. He he got this lens to take it out and test it. And Aaron suggested to him, you know, you got time. You got three hours before you leave. Let's take this thing apart and look at it. Okay, we've done this a million times. Piece of cake. End result, they got it all back together. He took it out. They put one switch in wrong. And the lens didn't work. So yeah, he didn't and, get to test it. So there's a switch in the base of the lens that can be in either or position, but that's it's not labeled inside to know what position it should be in. And you might overlook it when you're taking things apart. And I believe it was the switch that detected whether or not the lens was properly extended. Because and like locked, ma- yeah. 
Yeah, because like like many of the uh, the the compact pancake lenses that need to be rotated out before they can be used, there's a switch in there that detects what position it's in, um, and this is that switch for this particular lens, and it was just in the wrong position. So at least they figured that out. Um, but but it they was did just find interesting stuff in there. They did. And uh, Canon has actually started to use some different uh, manufacturing materials, a type of plastic that they've never seen before that looked weirdly transparent on the inside that slowly solidified into an opaque plastic on on the inner parts of it in a gradual type of sense. I've never seen a plastic like that before either. It's, um, a, it's a DO lens. It's diffracted optics, but this is gapless. So the, the there's no fused. air gap in between. They're actually filled with glue. Yeah, well, I mean, we knew that from to, the patents, to, but we we see that now. Right. In, and, uh, and the idea for that is less less flare, less aberration, better contrast, things like that. Right. What was interesting to me was compared to the other lenses, it's fascinating to look. So this lens, which is a 600 millimeter F11 lens, by the way, I know somebody who just used the 800 F11 to shoot the moon handheld, yeah. and it was scary good. Good. Uh, because I posted one I shot with my telescope, and they posted this, and it was really amazing. But this lens has 10 elements in seven groups. For comparison, the 600 F4 IS, which is a much more expensive lens, 17 elements in 13 groups. Both of them fixed at 600 millimeters. So that it gives you an idea what you're getting when you buy an inexpensive lens. It's true. Um and, you know, in this particular lens, you know, you want it to be easy to repair for things that might be easily broken. One of the things that they found was that um, once you remove the um, uh, the front, uh, what do you call it, the, the, the makeup ring, the thing that has yeah. the logos and the, the, the numbers in the front of it, uh, there's always screws underneath that to help disassembly. And it turns out that the, um, the filter thread uh, portion of the lens is very easily detachable from the barrel. And that's one of the uh, the primary points of breakage on a lens like this is you drop it and there's a filter on it or maybe not. But either way, you break the threads or the filter breaks it. You can't get the filter off. Or you or just some- strip it, screwing your filter on wrong. Exactly. And and so they've made it so that that component on this lens is very easy to replace. And they were happy to see that in the design. Um, they also noticed a lot of internal um, uh, adjustment screws that are not designed to be adjusted by human beings, but by machines. Um, During assembly. During assembly, and that that really helps uh, figure out the uh, the alignment of such a lens when it's in a machine that can record the data running through the optics and optimize it just by spinning some things automatically in real time. Uh, and uh, and then that just I I guess it helps the manufacturing costs, brings everything to a baseline very very quickly without a whole lot of deviation from copy to copy. Which um, for an inexpensive telephoto lens, you would traditionally have seen a lot of variance between copies. They, they also found some interesting construction. You mentioned, you know, long stuff all over. They found a lot of stuff they thought might be there for structural support because of the way that it telescopes. But they started, which I'm assuming based on the fact that they started there, is their normal disassembly at the rear of the lens. And they hit a wall and went, all right, <laughs> we give up here. They couldn't get the, the you know, mid-body part off. But they did find these fairly long, um, just like uh, plastic 
I don't know, skewers of sorts uh, along the side of the lens um, that they hadn't traditionally seen in Canon uh, lens design before. Because uh, when you have a a barrel design that has two separate uh, conjoined pieces of plastic that need to be put together at partway through the assembly, that's possibly a point of breakage. And so they had like doubled up the screws on that, which is great. And they put in these... um, I don't know, solid pieces of uh, of metal that are going down almost the entire length of the lens in order to just make things stay rigid uh, for a fairly lightweight camera and or uh, lens. You you can't if you're building the the lens body out of like plastic and lightweight materials, you're going to have it start to feel flimsy after a little while, um, and so you've got to then counter that with some components that offer a bit more solidness to the design. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. It was actually interesting. You mentioned the screws. That was really interesting when he would, he would decide to point out there's a lot of screws holding on part a and they're screwing into plastic, Plastic which must be why. And that's really good to see that, look, they're screwing into plastic. So they took extra care to make sure that these things are going to stay together, but that's what you expect from a first party lens. Well, and I, I have to, like, if I saw these photos uh, and even some of the descriptions from any other person, this would be a ho-hum article. But because they have taken so many things apart and they know how it compares to everybody else in the industry and what Canon has done previously and what breaks, um, then the article takes on a whole lot uh, of additional meaning, even if you don't intend to buy this lens. And I don't. Uh, well, I'm, not a, I'm not a Canon shooter anymore. But... Um, Read this article because it shows you a lot of the manufacturing process that we usually have no idea is going on. And and the most important part of it to me was what he just simply said about why he wanted to test it and he didn't get to in the first place. And that is, you know, why on earth would I want an F11 sub $1,000 lens that's, you know, 600 millimeters, no zoom, no adjustment of aperture, and his conclusion was because you know what? It fits some needs. I'm yeah. on vacation. I'm at a cabin somewhere. I just want to be able to throw a 600 on and catch some wildlife from far away. Uh, I think he mentioned alligators or something. Um, maybe that was a different article I read. But either way, that was a big takeaway for me was that there are people who have shot almost every lens we've never dreamed of touching can look at a lens like this and go, you know what? You can complain all you want about stuck F11, but it has a purpose. Yeah. And, and, and that purpose fits a niche that there's very little on the market right now that is filling. And this is going to be the test. How many of these they sell defines how big that niche is. And, but that uh, goes back to your first question before we started the stories, what's the state of the industry and what are those sales? Uh, well, and this lens, I mean, for all of its complexities in terms of core components, doesn't look that expensive to manufacture, especially when things are plastic on plastic and, and so on. Um, the diffractive optics, uh, elements are probably the, by far the most expensive components within this lens, but you look at the repairability, you know, you don't have an aperture assembly to, uh, to worry about inside that it's a simpler, uh, optical design. Uh, it, it seems like if this is a success for Canon, I would hope that every manufacturer or even just a big third party like Sigma makes something comparable and we could all enjoy it on every platform. I agree. Totally agree. Yep. Okay. Um, 
so you sent me this this final story, Steve, and I just I had to talk about it because if you've ever tried to do this manually oh. in Photoshop, uh, you need a half a bottle of wine in order to get through it because this is the kind of edit that is mind-numbingly boring yet technically difficult and frustrating to accomplish to do something that if you just held up a diffuser in the field for like 30 seconds uh, or however long you were shooting, the problem would have gone away. And so uh, from Petapixel, this AI automatically removes harsh shadows from your portraits. And we're talking about you're out in harsh sunlight and the face might not be illuminated properly. Or if it is, uh, you might have a shadow running across it or, you know, it's just it's not getting into the eye sockets or whatever else. And uh, that's a very difficult thing to, to deal with. Well, this new AI algorithm, computer scientists from Google, MIT and the University of California, Berkeley have created an impressive AI powered shadow removal tool that can realistically remove harsh shadows from portraits while leaving natural shadows intact. And they say in the article that the results are impressive. Well, looking through all of the example photographs, Steve, would you say it's impressive? I would say it's shockingly impressive. And the first time I saw this, uh, before I sent it to you, the first thought that hit me was, I have concert photos sometimes where a lead singer is being hit by a super bright spotlight from one side and the microphone leaves a bizarre, not even just shadow, it's it's bizarre color, it's in a weird spot on their face, and it's unflattering just the shadow of the microphone. And I'll have a great photo that I won't use because I don't want to go in and do luminosity masking to be able to separate out texture from color or luminosity and, and texture from color and try and touch that thing up. Well, and in some cases, the shadows are so deep and dark and they just brighten them up and they kind of, they tell you that they're still there, but they make them much less obvious. In other cases, like there's a an image with a, a man holding his phone up to take a picture and there's a shadow directly of his hand and the rectangle of the phone on yep. his face. As he takes uh, a selfie. As he's taken a, a selfie or uh, uh, who knows what he's taken. Um, don't put words in his mouth, Steve. You don't know. Who. Yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the shadow is largely removed almost entirely from the face. It's very much lightened up on his clothes. Now that shot though, that shot's one of the ones to me that was almost a fail because the the repaired skin is a different color. That's type. what I was going to point out because that one and some of the others, the repaired skin doesn't have exactly the same tone, but um, that can be fixed as the algorithm is trained. Or could you imagine having that as your starting point in Photoshop? to match the skin tone in that area, it would be far, far easier for me to use some uh, uh, adjustment layers to fix that issue where it is from the results of this algorithm uh, and carry on with my editing, having saved myself a lot of time in the but process. Look at the picture two under that one, which is the, the older gentleman uh, with the hand on his shoulder and the white t-shirt. Yep. That's just your, that's not your radical shadows, right? That's just your, this was shot in poor, harsh sunlight. Yeah. And so you got you know, your your cheeks uh, coming out a little bit, casting a shadow on the center part of your mouth. And then again, that that eye socket being darker than the rest of the area and the, the light falling off on one side because the sun's not hitting there. And it's a really harsh fall off that shows a lot of wrinkles. Um, the fixed version of that looks so natural. It's scary. Uh, it's scary. And um, 
yeah, portrait retouchers be warned. Uh, you may be out of a job. Um, but moreover, I think about the the industry at large and what it takes to get a good image. And by any means, whether or not you're doing this um, in camera, in studio, like in the field, using that diffuser or controlling the lighting and doing it all right perfectly and you press the button, you get a perfect shot. Or you get a fatally flawed shot that a software algorithm can look at and just go poof. Hey, it's magically so much better. Maybe not as good as that uh, high-end professional shoot, but good enough for almost everybody. And if you say good enough for almost everybody, that means the people that would be shooting professional portraiture for almost everybody, they should be worried too. Well, but- it also can be looked at as a preset, right? I mean, this is a this is the equivalent of a Lightroom preset. I'm not going to click it and be done, but right. this could get me 90% of the way there, and then I just go fix the anomalies that didn't come out the way that I want. The geek part of this is fascinating, though. They're using two separate neural networks. One of them understands facial shadows, the, the normal shadows that come from your eyebrow bones or your nose or the creases next to your mouth, it understands how to soften those to make them look better and if need, add fill light. There is a separate neural engine that does nothing but understand what a foreign shadow is, a shadow from the brim of your hat, your hands, etc. And what this is computational photography. You and I have talked about this at you know ad nauseum based on how good a modern Android or iOS phone is at photography. And a huge part of that is you take one picture and it really isn't one picture. It shoots oh, yeah. off a sequence of pictures, chooses the best frame, shoots off frames just for judging lighting, just for judging temperature, and merges all those in an instant. Well, unfortunately... <laughs> You know, Google is on the team. This is a, this is done, and uh, Google's a partner. MIT's a partner. Berkeley's a partner. Notice as soon Apple's as I saw, as soon as I saw Google being a partner, I'm thinking this is coming out to a pixel near you. This is yeah. coming out to a pixel near you long before Apple has it, um, which kind of makes me sad. But this is computational photography, and if you watch the video that's there, um, it's. It's absolutely amazing what they did. They matched it well. They sample, they shoot video of people casting shadows on their face and they shoot the video at 60 frames a second and they use that as the study material for the algorithms. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see those videos in the video. And as, as well. we know, those algorithms and the learning only gets better as you put more time and input into them. Um, so this is where we are right now. This is the First, I think I've seen it being publicly presented. Um, and if it's this good now, by the time it gets rolled into a commercial product, um, it will change things. Well, look at the, there, there was a quote uh, in one of the links from a team member, Cecilia Zhang on YouTube, where she said, we present a computational approach giving, and this, these two words caught me, giving casual photographers control to manipulate shadows and lighting on portraits, allowing poorly lit faces to be relit post-capture in a realistic and controllable way. Casual photographers. If you put this in the hand of people holding phones, 
then arguably pro photographers are going to have to get it too, and they'll pay a lot for it, or they're going to end up having to do way more work to fix the shadows and pictures they don't light right. Yeah. And uh, again, photography evolves. This is the latest evolution of photography. Um, uh, We've been saying it for years on this podcast that the computational element is taking over. And yes, I, I feel like I'm a purist in some ways with a lot of the work that I do where I like to, to document nature the way that it is. And yes, I've modified images uh, to the ninth degree. Uh, but at the core of it, the more authentic it is to the way the camera captured it, the more uh, it feels like a photograph and not an image. Uh, and I think that there, we're starting to get a bigger distinction between those two words, photograph and image, that have always been pretty well synonymous uh, over the last little while, the last decades at the very least. Um, and now I think we're going to have a delineation of those two terms uh, when we see what all of the computer muscle and artificial intelligence puts into our photographs on the other side of it you have an image. Uh, When you press the button and you collect light and that light is interpreted into an image and it doesn't matter your dynamic range or uh, however the signal is necessarily processed so long as it's not manipulated, um, that's a photograph. And uh, I think that definition, uh, that, that wall is being built between those two things brick by brick right now. Yeah, I completely agree. I am, I am so super excited for what, computer engineers are doing to manipulate the way we capture light because we've always been stuck with physics is physics and you can't bend light in in a way that's unnatural if you shoot a wedding at 12 noon and sometimes you have to shoot a wedding at 12 noon you're going to end up with harsh light if it's out in a garden and and these type of things are really i think have the ability to change the perception of photography i i embrace it in many ways not all but i like uh I, I I await the next amazing algorithm for focus stacking that doesn't have artifacts that I need to fix in post. And I'm sure it's just interpreting the data in the right way and deep learning within that niche. And that'll come too. And then I don't have to do all the legwork myself, right? It's going to hit every part of every industry. Um, and so long as we are the people wielding the tools and the knowledge to use them and uh, have potentially established ourselves with a name and connections that you know already established clients that'll keep coming back to you, um, then there's always going to be a need for those professionals. But unless you're constantly adapting and riding the wave, you'll be underwater very quickly at the pace of this um, inventive uh, industry that we're in. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a good time to be alive. It is. Well, in terms of photographic technology, I'm yes. not sure about the, the rest of the world at large. 2020 is the most memorable year that everybody wants to forget. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's get into our picks of the week. But before we do, Steve, where can people find you online, uh, your wonderful podcast, Behind the Shot, and elsewhere? Uh, Behind the Shot is at, and thank you very much, very kind of you. Uh, Behind the Shot is at BehindTheShot.tv. Normal episodes are me with one guest dissecting a photo. Think of it as interviewing a photo to understand why a photographer makes the choices that they make. And I just released an episode the day we are recording this with the amazing Kaylee Greer. I loved recording this episode. She's a pet photographer. She photographs dogs in ways like you would never imagine, has huge clients, um, 
and that just published today. Also, of course, you and I do the critique shows through my podcast, Behind the Shot. We do it at the at the YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Behind the Shot. Finding me online is easy, Steve Brazel. It's just at Steve Brazel, like the country Brazil, but two L's on Instagram or Twitter. Or Twitter are uh, where I spend most of my time. You know, you should have registered your name with one L and then say, this is the parody account of Steve Brazel and uh, just made jokes about yourself on the parody I sh- I account. Should. Yeah, you gave somebody an idea. Yeah, <laughs> it'll happen. Uh, there you go. You're you're getting famous enough for it too, and uh, your personality is charismatic enough to uh, thank you uh, uh, to to enjoy every time you're on this show. We have such a good conversation, and so thank you for being a part of that for all of the stories. Now, uh, what pick do you have uh, for us? This to talk is about this it's funny because you and I were talking before we went live, and I just sent you a link in the in the Zoom chat. You and I were were talking. Because I had thought of a pick and then I forgot to write it down. I forgot what it was and it suddenly hit me. I saw, I do a show with a buddy of mine by the name of Adam L. Micaias called the Raw Editing Challenge. We, we Mondays usually, sometimes Tuesday, we release a raw image from a well-known photographer. People have a week to edit it any way they want and post it. And then we get together at five o'clock on Sundays on Adam's Twitch channel and we party and we interview the guy. We do a small version of behind the shot and the, the, the original photographer edits the image live. And then we go through people's edits that have been submitted online. And somebody submitted this crazy image last week. And people were saying, how did you do that? Well, so they, make sure that you send me a link to this so I can put that in it's the show in the, notes. It's in the zoom chat. Uh, well, yeah, I I've got the, uh, adobe.com slash product slash, mix. And I had never heard of this software. And what happened was somebody responded to them. Oh my gosh. And I don't, I don't know that I could find the thread again, but how did I not know about Adobe mix or Photoshop mix? And so I went and I downloaded it on my phone and it's actually a really cool mobile composite software. But I, what, what I was saying, send me the link to the show where somebody did something crazy because now you've, you've oh, piqued oh, my oh, interest. I, I want to yeah. see what they did with this. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's raw editing challenge is the easiest place to go. Or I'll send you the link to Adam's thing. But what's interesting about this is it's a software where you can composite on your iPad or your phone. You can bring in different pictures. You can mask stuff out, overlay things. But then... You can transfer it to Photoshop and the layers come out intact in Photoshop for you to go clean it up. So you can do a quick proof on your iPad, go, yeah, that's it, and go in and clean up all the masking and do anything else that you want. And it's kind of a cool little app. And uh, it's on the App Store, uh, uh, iOS, and of course, Google Play. So you can get it on either platform. Um, I, I haven't played with it myself. I'm just taking a look at this. I'm going to have to try this. Just, I mean, I don't do a lot of this kind of work to be completely honest with you. But, I agree. Like, but, but even in the, in the quick example that they're showing, uh, of, uh, on the website, you load it up, there's a person in a coffee cup or a teacup or a, a creamer cup. Cause there's a little lip on the backside and there's some birds up above, but they're like in, in it as a swimming pool. And there's a little swimming pool ladder coming up on the side. But then what gets me is um, how hard would it be on a phone or a tablet to make the reflection of the uh, the ladder going into the cup 
on the ceramic of the cup itself. Wouldn't be that hard. And again, you could do it on your iPad, then transfer it into Photoshop and do all the shadow effects, layer layer effects that you want. Yeah, and I can see flaws when I'm looking closely, like some of the, the rungs on the ladder on the left-hand side are a little bit too dark. Top and, of the cups cut out wrong. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to get you close to where you want to be. Uh, if you just have some crazy idea and you're sitting there on the couch or, you know, we've got this wonderful porch swing in our backyard and I watch my daughter run around with a, uh, a bug net and she catches whatever she can find and promptly brings it back to me for a full report on what it is. Um, and in between my reports, I could be sitting there tinkering with whatever this is, uh, and just being creative, uh, without having to get really deep and serious about it, which I usually do. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, there is just some crazy stuff that you can do on an iPhone or an iPad or Android device. And the fact that you, you can transfer it to a desktop layers intact is not minor to me. That it's no, huge. that that that's the biggest part of it because if yeah. it's Photoshop compatible with those layers and masks and so on, uh, then that's what piques my interest more than any of the features within the app itself. It's how can I take that forward? Um, yeah. Now, my pick is uh, it's something integral to my data security, and as we talked about at the very beginning, uh, you should value your data. Uh, above all else in your computer infrastructure. It's your photos. It's your organization of those photos. It's your tax documents and so many other things that are really important that you never want to lose uh, lose track of. Um, and so I, I was uh, upgrading my NAS uh, earlier this year with some bigger hard drives. And so I was looking at the, the older ones um, and they're, they're no slouch. Um, and I realized that I've been buying for the last while, uh, the last decade or more, uh, Western digital hard drives and uh, particularly their red drives, and now also their red pro drives um, for any NAS installation that I use. Now, one of the reasons why I use the red pro is in a larger array, uh, my computer can hold as many as, as 12 uh, in, in my Synology NAS right now. Um, when you have that many drives, they tend to vibrate. And if they don't vibrate in sync, you can get um, those, those oscillations creating uh, like the interference patterns that really start to take over and shake something when you have enough of them going at once. Uh, the Red Pros have a sensor inside to detect if that starts to happen. And by whatever secret voodoo inside, uh, they change w the way they're vibrating, whether it's their speed or whatever else, probably it's speed, um, in order to prevent that from happening so that there's a coalescence of everything that just stays nice and calm and smooth. Um, and probably for that level, um, you also have an extended uh, mean time between failure, uh, which I believe is double that of a regular red drive. Uh, which are no slouches to begin with. But if you want to trust your data and just give it a little bit more credibility, yeah, th they could fail. Uh, I've never had one fail. But Steve, I'm sure you see failed drives all the time when you're working in IT. I, moving yes. parts break. Uh, and the, these are physical moving parts. So you're not immune to anything as a result. Um, but I think Western Digital has really hit it home, uh, not only with uh, their their pro drives, uh, but with the red series to begin with, yeah, there's been some issues, uh, with some, uh, drives designed for long-term storage, not being marketed as such and being put into NAS arrays and failing performance scales miserably. That's behind us now. Well, um, uh, or is it? 
Uh, well. So uh, here's the thing. Uh, in April of this year, Western Digital admitted that there are two terabyte to six terabyte Western Digital Red NAT. Now the Red Drive, so that you know they have different drives. They have the green, which is the the uh, the uh, power. Black is high performance. Red is considered to be a NAS drive, right? It's designed for 24-hour running devices. They admitted that their two to six terabyte Western Digital drives used shingled magnetic recording, which can cause problems actually in a NAS. And what happened was a lot of Synology users were starting to use these drives that were just coming out and having major problems in Synologies, it ended up in the Synology forums. And now Western Digital has admitted that they are using SMR drives uh, in their red lines. But they uh, that caps out at six terabytes. Yes, does cap out. Uh, it's two, two terabyte to six terabyte. And are they still doing it or did they switch that? No, not only are they not. In fact, they're not the only ones. Seagate and Toshiba have also admitted that they are using SMR drives. So uh, I was they're cheaper. Up, to build. Right. Uh, I, I was holding up an eight terabyte uh, drive and they make them up to 14 now, I think, on the Red yep. Pro line. Um, and yeah, they, I mean, they're not cheap when you go up to the, the extremes. And I think you told me before, Steve, uh, never buy the highest capacity drive that's available. Buy the one level below that. Yep. Because that's been more proven. You're not getting the cutting, bleeding edge of technology that is more likely to fail. Um, they've had it out for a while. They've worked out some bugs. Maybe they've gone through revision of the manufacturing. Uh, and you can see that on the devices. I don't know exactly if it'll tell me. I'd have to find a reference to it. This is a, a WD8001, which means it's a first generation of the eight terabyte drives. I did not follow your advice, Steve, um, because if you wait for uh, a 10 or 12 to come out, then the eights would have been at a different revision from that one being a two or a three. Um, and yeah, but, but you are correct. And that is if you buy if you buy eight to 14 or 20 or whatever, they are CMR based as opposed to SMR. And based. CMR stands for? CMR is uh, conventional magnetic recording. And uh, we won't get into the way that shingles are kind of on an angle and overlap versus conventional doesn't have that feature because we have been talking for an hour and 10 minutes at this point. No, but you kind of summed uh, <laughs> it up. And that is it overlaps data on top of itself with the intent of keeping both. Right. Which is not a safe way to store long-term storage in, in a NAS. Exactly. And... Uh, and so, but the, the the Red Pro drives, I've loved. And if you want to protect your data, you, you need not only the drives, you need the, the ecosystem. You got to back stuff up. I've got it in a Synology NAS that's in RAID 6. So if two of the drives fail, I don't lose anything. There's an extra drive in there that is running as a hot spare. So if this happens in the middle of the night, by the time I wake up in the morning, it might already be close to have healed the problem. Um, and so there's so many different facets to this. Um, but at the same time, uh, it starts with the drives and I've been very happy with the Western digital red pro drives. I don't believe the SMR drives were used in the pro line, but just the regular red drives, right, Steve? Uh, yes, that's right. Yes. All right. That's and my, by pick. the way, let me say almost all I use are Western digital drives or HGST, which is HGST. Always yeah. Uh, dyslexic, uh, which are effectively high end drives as well. 
HGST. That was what was the, the elongated name? They were bought by two different companies at two I different times. I think they're partially the owned by Western Digital now. Yes, I think they are owned by Western Digital. Um, but uh, something Star. I remember Star was part of the name. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, Desk Star. Yes, Desk, Desk Star, Star. That's it. That's what it was. Desk, not death. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Not a good product name for storing your data. Um, Steve, thank you for being on the podcast. As always, I appreciate your time. Um, you always have such good insights to these stories. I'm going to have to have you on even more often. I've toyed with the idea of having you on every other episode, but uh, I don't know what the audience would think. That might be too much, Steve. Let us know in the comments if yeah. uh, if, <laughs> if that would be too much of Mr. Steve Brazel. TMS. Uh, <laughs> too much, Steve. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this podcast. I appreciate it as always. And now it's time to stay in and shoot.